Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Chandler Vanoy. Hello, hello. Oh, you're going Daniel. You're going I, Daniel I just, Imstock. I just had to throw it back for the listeners who oh. who missed Daniel. That was a in He's, on. He's back on. Yeah, that's right. He's back on. That's right. No, no worries there at all. Um, okay, so today uh, we have a special guest, D.A. Horton. And I just pronounced Horton like Daniel would have. Very Canadian <laughs> in a very Canadian way. Uh, so if you don't know uh, who... Day is he serves as a pastor of Reach Fellowship in Long Beach, California. Uh, and man, you've had you've had a lot of different roles over the years for such a young man. Uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit more about yourself. And and I see you're at uh, uh, Cal Baptist, which um, I was just talking to him about uh, a little bit earlier. I did. So back in the day, Centrifuge, <laughs> and then there was Missionfuge. So David yeah. Platt and I actually were at Cal Baptist 20 years ago um, doing, like, camp um, for, for high school students. Way back in the day. Back in the day. <laughs> yeah. So I know that campus well. I shot grapefruit from, uh, uh, like, you know, the water balloon launchers. Oh, yeah. I would shoot those at skunks because you all have grapefruits <laughs> all over the campus. And so yeah. they fit perfectly, bro. They fit perfectly in there. And they would launch. It was amazing. Uh, so lots of golf carts, frisbees, and skunks. Were I, would, I would have loved to meet Camp Counselor Todd. Oh, it was. I was a rec director, <laughs> which is way worse. Uh, sorry, I've made this. I've made it about me again. Back to DA. Back to DA. DA, tell us more about yourself, uh, your ministry journey and family. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, recently I became an assistant professor of intercultural studies at Cal Baptist University, uh, in addition to serving as a pastor at Reach Fellowship, a church plant in Long Beach, California. Been married to my best friend, Alicia, for almost 17 years. Uh, We're blessed with three children, Isabel, who's going to be 16, Lola, who's 11, and then our son, Deuce, who is six. And um, yeah, it was a journey. You know, we've been here in California for four years now. Prior to, um, we were commissioned out by the Summit Church. Uh, Shout out to J.D. Greer and uh, Mike McDaniel for the Summit Network. Um, Prior to that, we were in Atlanta, Georgia, living in Decatur for a few years and then up and coming, um, Georgia, working with the North American Mission Board. But prior to that, also working with Reach Life, which at that time was the nonprofit uh, arm of ministry of Reach Records. Uh, then prior to that, uh, served as a pastor and a planter church revitalizer in Kansas City for close to six years. And uh, that's where me and my, my wife are from, born and raised in Kansas City. So, yeah, we've been around the block a few times um, over the past. Man, it's it's uh, I've been ordained for 11 years. It's been quite a journey. Well, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. So um, I think I can't remember the first time I met you um, or if we. Did we have a conversation about, I asked you to explain backpack hip hop to our listeners? <laughs> yeah, the boom bap era and all that good stuff. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. I was like, hey, I was trying to explain this to somebody. <laughs> Sorry, it's really weird for a person that looks like me uh, and does what it's I do. Uh, but yeah. All right. So uh, I want to know who you are presently learning from. Yeah, you know, um, I think there's uh, two nuances to that. There's the global 
perspective. And then there's the local expression of that. Uh, globally, right now, I am getting rocked by uh, the writings and the perspective of Carlos Rene Padilla, who is a missiologist and a pastor uh, from Latin America. And uh, him, Samuel Escobar, Orlando Costas, um, their, their life and their work is, is framed wonderfully uh, in a book called A Gospel for the Poor by Dr. David Kirkpatrick. He's a historian uh, at James Madison University. Um, but I was introduced to the writings of Padilla, um, man, when I was, you know, 38 years old, I'm 39 about to turn 40. And the reason I mention that is because there's a, a deep hole in my heart that throughout, you know, from the age five, all the way to 38, when I'm, you know, at the closing part of my PhD program, I had never been introduced to Latino scholarship that was evangelical, that was social, uh, social conscientious, uh, evangelistic, um, and just Bible rooted with frameworks and guardrails until I was 38 years old. And so I just feel like I'm making up for lost time. So as much of the content that I can consume and process and analyze from Padilla, he's really shaping me from afar. Um, and then lo locally, you know, I'm blessed because serving as a professor, but also as a pastor, I'm in community uh, here at Cal Baptist, you know, Dr. Chris Morgan, Dr. Tony Shute, Dr. Amy Stumpf, Dr. Soon Jin Chung, them pouring into me, shaping me, not just about scholarship, but what it looks like to engage in, in holistic ministry to the students, even to my family, uh, even to my colleagues, has been deeply encouraging. And then also on a local basis, the local elders in our church, you know, Nate Wood, Carlos Gaxiola, Tyler Smith, Ivan Gallegos. Uh, those brothers are my accountability system. They're my pastors. They shepherd my heart. They love me. And inclusive of that inner circle is my wife, Elysia, and my children. Uh, I learn from my wife in many ways. I learn from my children. You know, they're Gen Z. <laughs> they're a target demographic that I write to and engage with. And when I listen to how they're processing through life in Long Beach, California, and their generational nuances, you know, we have interesting conversations about hot topics of the day that's popping on the news to biblical interaction with those such topics. Anything from what's going on, uh, you know, locally or what's going on globally, the election season. And then we integrate that with, you know, biblical truth to help them think about their worldview as it's shaping. So they help me learn in that process as well. So with, I know you said you're the assistant professor of intercultural studies at Cal Baptist. So if somebody and everybody you're learning from is definitely, it sounds like is somewhat shaped in that um, kind of reading to, to be able to teach that. If someone is listening, is wanting to maybe study further the, that kind of topic, intercultural studies, where would you kind of point them to begin? I know you referenced a few authors there. Is there like one to two uh works that you would point them to or kind of ideas? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Global, Go uh, Global Gospel by Jacobson is the textbook that we worked through in my intro to global studies class. And it basically gives the historic narrative of the Christian faith and how it was introduced to the inhabited continents. I think believers today learning church history will help them understand how the church contextualize the nuances of the Great Commission, where they lived in the time that they lived in. And it helps us to gain a, a freedom and a liberation from uh, mechanics and, and, and things that would come off a little bit more divisive, even amongst the body of Christ. And I think that as we learn, like, oh, this is how it was introduced to Africa, like literally on Pentecost by Africans who embraced mm -hmm. Christ when they heard Peter's sermon, uh, you know, that completely reshapes the narrative. 
perspective from what I had heard, you know, that, man, Africans weren't introduced to the gospel until the transatlantic slave trade. And so we're talking centuries before uh, that Christianity was flourishing in Alexandria. It was flourishing in North Coastal Africa. Um, I had never heard those things before. And so it helps even in the modern day context when I'm engaging with conversations with Hebrew Israelites, the nation of gods and earth, the nation of Islam, and they try to frame Christianity as a white man slave owning religion. And I'm like, well, hold on. you got to look at the <laughs> flourishing of what was going on with North African church fathers like Athanasius and when we look at Cyprian and when we look at Origen and when we look at Augustine. Um, so I think arming even lay members in the church with that knowledge is helpful. Um, I would also say, obviously, anything written by Ed Stetzer. I'm a huge Ed Stetzer fan. Um, he's a great I'm friend sorry, of mine. Sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> if he's listening, he's probably like, oh, man, Damon, like, I don't think you do the same way. <laughs> no, but, uh, no, we but do. Know. We still do uh, new churches with Daniel and Ed. I still yeah, do that yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then, um, you know, I also think um, Michael Green's evangelism in the early church it just, he really does a masterful job of showing how the local churches in the Christian faith, our mothers and fathers, they, 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 they did three regular practices. They made Jesus known. They made him known. They were unashamed about Jesus. Number two, they actually gave opportunities for people to put their faith in Christ. So they were constantly making appeals for people to put their faith in Christ. And then they sought to engage the needs of the people in their community. So they did not divorce gospel proclamation from demonstration. It was integrated wovenly so well in the midst of that community. And so I think, you know, we, we're in a crisis when it comes to evangelism and discipleship. That's a great commission crisis. And so I think the more believers that engage with the practices of how our fathers and mothers of the faith didn't separate or parse those things out from their life rhythms, but they live through that lens as you're going make disciples. Gospel proclamation was natural. Discipleship was natural. And God did amazing work through the early church. And I think that's something we need to recapture in our day. So do you think that's more difficult to do in this day? That, uh, uh, well, first of all, I'm speaking in a North American context. Is that is that easier? Um, is that more difficult to do in our day than it was in a different time in history? I don't think it's uh, really a question of difficulty because when we take a step back and we recognize even the place of privilege we have as North Americans and the opportunities we have for technology, that this podcast can be literally heard anywhere around the world that somebody has access to the internet and they find the right address to where this podcast is hosted. Um, when we look at the realities of even the first century church, they lived in a community in the city of Rome known as Sabora. Sabora was the red light district. Sabora was the space in Rome in which the fire that Nero started didn't touch. So it was easy for him to frame and blame Christians for this fire. You know, they were living in the red light district. So many times in our day and age, we run from the red light district to a place of comfort and personal peace. That's what Francis Schaeffer said back in the 80s. And so when I think about the, the nuances of our day, it's the same gospel. It's the same great commission. I just think now it's the idols of comfort, the idols of personal peace. It's the idols of self-preference that we have to combat, confess, and then destroy in order to be freed up. So in, in that day, they, they had different idols that they struggled with. So there was a level of difficulty that they struggled with. 
in our day, there's idols that we wrestle with. And I just think we have to learn and identify what are the idols today that the American church is bowing to? And then how can we forsake these idols and how can we pick up the cross and mobilize effectively? There's definitely a lot to learn there. So if you're listening, there's basically a whole syllabus that DA just shared with you of recommended <laughs> reading. So you can get started with just a few of those and they're, they're going to be great resources that we can all learn from. Now, I know that you're pastoring as well as you're, you're teaching um, in your professor role. So what is the main point of emphasis or maybe a few for your leadership team and even yourself right now? Yeah, in, in the local church, uh, we have recently announced to our church a transition. Um, you know, my goal in planting Reach Fellowship was to raise support, um, identify local leaders, help pour into them, raise them up through discipleship rhythms, and then empower them to lead while I progressively step away. Hmm. We've entered into that final phase. And so right now, uh, things are looking differently than they did over the last three and a half years. Now, right now, each of those four men that I mentioned, they're developing rhythms of togetherness amongst the four of them. The relationships with other partner organizations or other churches or parachurch organizations, they're not flowing back to me. They're flowing back to one of those four men. Uh, trying to frame these men as the pastors to the members of our congregation uh, is something that I'm working on diligently now. And to be very transparent, um, a few months ago, I was the recipient of uh, multiple diagnoses of mental illnesses. And it came at a time that uh, it helped me literally uh, process through, you know, the untimely and surprising death of Pastor Jared Wilson. Mm -hmm. um, when that took place in September, I, I to this day, I haven't been the same. And uh, I'm, I'm learning how to bring people into that tension, including my wife and those four men. And those four men have pastored me so well. They have loved me so well. We've sat in the tension of uncertainty. We've sat in the tension of my embarrassment of saying, these are the thoughts, these are the lies that I want to believe right now. Uh, they've been with me with my diagnosis. They realized that, you know, my scans came back and I have brain damage, things that I didn't know about, stuff that I'm learning. Uh, these men have not had to have the right answers because sometimes there is no right answer. But what they have done is they have just been there as a personifying of Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. They are giving me comfort in my time of affliction. They comfort each other in their times of affliction. And I think it's, it's through that fire that we have melded together meaningful relationships that you cannot communicate in a prospectus. You, you can't iron out every nuanced detail on a piece of paper. It looks great in theory, but in the, in the crucible, that's when things become tangible. And so now it's about me engaging with them, being honest about my perspectives and, and, and my struggles and them loving me and shepherding me. Um, I've been open about the leadership of that, my struggles with the leadership of, uh, you know, Cal Baptist and my deans, and they have been supportive as well. So we're all in this process of trying to learn how do we navigate those tensions of mental illness, being spirit filled, being someone who is an inerrantist, being someone who is missiologically engaged, someone who has a desire to preach and teach the word of God. But yet at the same time, with the struggles and the limitations I have, um, you know, what, what does this look like moving forward? And so that's what it's been in, in my leadership circle um, over the past four months. And, and the, the goal that I have and my desire has always been that everyone who has stakeholder ownership in my life, that they're going to get the same Damon. 
that it's not, you know, these four men in my church, they get one view of Damon. And then my leadership at, at Cal Baptist University, they see another view of Damon. And then my wife and my kids see it. No, I, if everyone were in the same room and they were all to say, okay, tell us Damon Horton. My goal is that they would all say the same nuances. Like here's his struggles. Here's how he leads with vulnerability. Here's how he confesses his sin. Here's how he responds to when he's c- confronted. Uh, here's what it looks like when he loves his wife. Or here's when he admits that, He needs to work in this area of parenting. And I would want it to be the same narrative. And I learned that early on in life with good counsel from older pastors who love me enough to tell me, man, be the same person every room that you go into so that when false accusations come at you, that you have a community of people that will fight for your reputation because they genuinely know you and they're not caught off guard. And there's no double life that they're going to discover based on those false accusations. And so I've done the best of my ability to not just do that for myself, but to bring other people into that perspective so that we're never caught off guard by any struggle of sin or any issue because we've been living so transparent in the meantime. Well, thank you for your vulnerability on that and then sharing that on the podcast. And something that you were talking about there is just the, it was just very evident as how much you leaned into community and all of that. I think it's easy, especially in our day where it's individualistic and it's, I want to do this on my own. I'm going to be the best I can be. And you lean in and say, Hey, I've got these, these men around me. I'm leaning into my wife. So for somebody who is maybe walking through a struggle of maybe, maybe it is mental illness, or maybe it's just a a struggle of sin. How would you, and they haven't stepped into community. How would you kind of advise someone and to live the same way in front of all, all people? What would you say to them if, Hey, here's how to engage with your community. Here's how to, to share about these things. What advice would you give there? Yeah, the first thing I would feel led to say is I I would speak to the risk of that. It's very risky. Relationships are risky. Hmm. I would also admit that in the midst of the risk, I've been hurt. I've been wounded. I mean, I've been stabbed in the back. I've been slandered. I've been gossiped about. There are people that I've opened up to about my struggles with that have done everything from rebuke me in the name of Jesus to basically just sit there, listen, not give me any response and then go and share their perspective with other people. So mm-hmm. I would acknowledge the hurt and the pain. And then I would tell them, such is the body of Christ. Such is the life of living with people who are indwelt with the spirit of God, but yet we struggle with unredeemed humanity. And then I would lean into the conversation to say, I have scars. I have scars on my heart. I have scars on my mind. I have scars on my physical body. Scars are a representation that healing is possible. So no matter how deep the wound, no matter how deep the injury was, no matter how deep the the knife went into my back, man, it was through the means of God's word, the Holy Spirit, Jesus's prayers of intercession. It was the community of the regenerate membership of my local church that Jesus leveraged as healing salve. So that scar shows healing is possible through Christ and his local church. And so I think of the scars of my savior. I, I, I you know, we, we, we talk about that in sermons that, oh, you know, the, the nail prints on his wrists and his feet are the, the reminders of his love. And I'm like, he has been deeply afflicted more than I have. I think about how Judas betrayed him. I think about how Peter locked eyes with him and denied him while Christ was looking at him. And Peter knew the conviction and walked away bitterly weeping. But then I know how on the beach shore, Jesus restored Peter. And we see what God did through the ministry of Peter for the remainder of his days until he was taken 
It's a glory. And, and I look at that and I'm just like, man, that, that's when the scriptures come to life. It's in community that the scriptures come to life. When I'm in isolation, I can build my walls of self-preservation and I'm using the Bible as stones and this, this superficial wall that will crumble when the storms of life come. And so for me, I recognize, you know, if I'm struggling with clinical severe depression and suicidal ideations, the worst thing for me is to be alone. I need people to know what's going on. I need them. So to me, it's literally as Dr. Daniel Amen, who is my psychiatrist, he's a believer. He's telling me, Damon, you're fighting for your life every day. And I'm like, you're right, I am. But the good news is I'm not fighting alone. And I feel that we're robbing ourselves from the joys and the pains of the tension of the Christian struggle when we try to do it by ourselves or we allow church hurt to to, to give us an excuse to run into isolation. So again, I would say, let me acknowledge the risk first, but then in doing that, I will highlight the rewards and say, it is worth it. It is worth it. Do I forgive the people who have hurt me? Yes. Why? Why do I forgive them? Because you know what? In times in my walk with Christ, I've done the same thing to others. I am not above them. I am just like them in need of the master's grace, in need of the master's work every day. So I love my brothers and my sisters who have hurt me. I have sought forgiveness from the ones that I have hurt over the last 24 years that I've been walking with Jesus since my teenage years. And some some situations lead to reconciliation. Some situations, some people will never acknowledge the sinful things that they did to me. And I've just left that to the Lord. Others have said, you're right. I just didn't know how to talk to you about it. Thank you for leading. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. I confess I was wrong. And I'm like, I love you. I, you're my brother. You're my sister. We're in this together. And so I would say that the ro- the rewards far outweigh the risks of living in community with meaningful relationships. That's good. That's good. What what about what would you say to a leader who is listening and you know it may be depression, it may not be exactly some of the things that you struggle with, but they're struggling with something. Maybe it's addiction. I, I don't know. Um, what would you say to that leader about? getting that out in the open because some some would say, oh, I, I'm I'm in too deep or um I, you know, the shame that might be there or or what is what is at stake here? Um I mean I know you said you said it's worth it because for a while there I was thinking I'm gonna ask him was it worth it? And <laughs> yeah you yeah. answered the question. But answer that for for some of our listeners who who may be thinking, uh I'm once again convicted, but I can't get over the line. I'm, I, I got to keep this in the dark. Absolutely. And and I think there's different nuances. So I can generally speak to a couple that, that, you know, just are on my heart right now. I think, number one, if we have truly trusted Christ to save our soul, then he'll also provide for us the physical needs that we have. So often when I've spoke with leaders in different organizations, but also in churches, they're fearful of coming clean with their uh, their struggles or their addictions because they're like, how am I going to feed my family? Like my, 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 my college degree, my seminary training, everything is ministerially connected. So if I come clean, I literally have no way to provide for my family. I have no way to take care of my wife and my children. Like I'm, I'm done. And so we think in this fatalistic mindset that if I do this, I'll never recuperate. I'll never bounce back. I'm letting down my whole family. So they continue in that process. Man, I would say if you trusted Jesus to redeem your soul, 
the reality is God is a good God. He is a good father. Every perfect gift that comes from our father is perfectly timed according to James 1. So it's about believing in the essence of the scriptures. It's about believing that there is forgiveness. It's about believing that your story is not done being written, that God wants to continue to write your story with the lens of redemption. And I've talked to pastors who have, uh, you know, had their their spot blown, so to speak, where they didn't come clean. And God then said, I love you enough that this is my discipline. And my discipline is your sin is exposed so that finally we can now deal with this tension. You can confess and we can bear fruits of repentance. And every single pastor, every single leader from a parachurch organization that I have ever talked to, and we've had these legitimate tension-filled conversations, has always said, life is better on this side of confession. Because they were paranoid. They were running. I mean, just look, look at the words of David. And when he said, my bones ached, like he's talking about the torture because he knew of the unconfessed sin. And and, and I want to comfort pastors and, and leaders as well to say, you know, this is not calling you to go on a wild goose chase looking for some hidden sin. That's been my problem. My problem is, is that I'm thinking there's something unconfessed in my life that I have to overstone, I have to uh, overturn every stone going on a wild goose chase in my mind. Well, man, is it when I was 11 that that this person said this to me and, and I did and I cussed them out in my mind? Like, God, is this? So I would have this OCD mentality of looking for these things hidden in my life somewhere. Where honestly, God is like, no, it's the overt, unconfessed sin that you have a pattern of hiding. That's what we need to deal with. And so if there's a listener saying, man, that's me, whether it's infidelity, whether it's stealing money from your church, whether it is, uh, you know, uh, uh, an addiction to substances, dependency, chemical dependency. I think we also have to take the the, the perspective in, in, into to the nuance of the conversation that sometimes there are brain chemistry issues that, that we need to adhere to as Christians, that it's not it's not bypassing sin. But it's saying that in cooperation with sin is this chemical dependency, is this brain chemistry, uh, you know, things that are out of wired. And, and it does need a different type of attention than just accountability group. Like there is professional help that is needing to be sought in addition to a restoration process. And so I think when we think holistically and robustly and we become a culture of grace, um, man, I think that that's going to lead people. If God brings their issues out and it leads to discipline, that it's going to be in love and there's going to be healing and there's going to be a lot more stories of redemption rather than people going rogue and walking away from the church and, and putting up Instagram posts that they've abandoned the faith and all these things. Rather, it's no, nah, man, you know what? I sought the Lord and he heard my cry in the dark night of the soul. Jesus was there. And by his grace, he uncovered my sin when I was too weak to lift the covers off. Or he gave me the empowerment through my local community to say, here I am, broken, ashamed, naked, and I need community. And that's when the church needs to run to people and love them because that's what the Father has done to us. So good. On this podcast, we equip our listeners with the absolute best resources to help their churches thrive. So if you're looking at launching a thriving church in a rented venue or perhaps a new one that you own, I would encourage you to check out the team at Portable Church. Portable Church Industries equips churches meeting in alternative venues with total solutions so that you can launch strong, be reproductive, and thrive in your community. For over 25 years, they've partnered with church planters and multi-site leaders, mastering creative, intelligent, and effective portable church solutions so that you and your team can stay focused on the thing that really matters, and that's building disciples. Do you want to see what this looks like? Visit portablechurch.com slash 
So what are one or two things that you have to do every day to stay sharp as a leader and, and, and just be healthy? Yeah, you know, praying to the Lord privately is um, a key discipline that has, man, it's just flourished my walk with the Lord so deeply and well over, man, the past you know, 11 years, in addition to uh, scripture reading and meditating on scripture and then asking the Lord to guide my heart to translate these concepts of his word into the community that I live in and I'm around. I think in addition to that conversations with my wife, um, her perspective, her vantage point, listening to her heart, both about God's word, what what she's praying about, um, questions that we have that we're taking to the Lord together uh, the ways that I can be engaged with our children, like those things are are, are necessary daily for me to engage with. Um, because, you know, if I'm not leading my wife well in humility, brokenness and honesty and decision making, which is my greater struggle, um, if I'm not leading my children well, then, man, it's off or not. At the end of the day, it's a farce. It, it's hypocritical. And mm. so I think I've put my family on the altar of sacrifice for ministry for far too long. And so I'm learning how to recalibrate and to say really to embody family first. And, and, I, and I just never did that well in previous seasons because I, I felt guilty. I felt that I'm on the church's payroll. I've got to give everybody my best and my family always got the scraps. And it took me investing in people deeply and then not seeing a return of investment and then being burnt for me to recognize, wow, I've really wasted my best investments. And and now we're in a season that I'm approaching that I feel like my family's getting the best investments first and chiefly, especially my children. And um, that's, that's what I'm trying to learn how to do better each day. So you basically just set up the next question perfectly and you may have already answered a little bit of it. Um, but what, what does leadership in your home look like? I know you said you're trying to, to pray with your wife. You're trying to give space and boundaries for, for your family time. So there, you may have already answered this, but would you expound upon that a little bit more? Absolutely. So, you know, uh, at dinner, we, we, we really make it a habit to have dinner together. Uh, and it's not this, you know, elaborate candle lit every single night. Sometimes <laughs> like last night, it's, it's taco salad and tacos. And, and we're asking each other a great question that we picked up from a family the Dalton family in, in, in Kansas City is that they would go around the table and ask everyone at the table what was like one good thing that happened in your day and one bad thing. Hmm. And the content that comes from our hearts uh, in those moments is very, very helpful. And, and we're in a unique space because, you know, we have one child in, in elementary, one in middle school and one in high school. So we've got the spectrum covered. Uh, two of our children are part of Long Beach Unified. Our oldest goes to a private Christian school. And so they're, they're in different spaces, uh, but they're similar rhythms. And then we also engage world events. You know, we've been processing with our, our, our six-year-old uh, the truthfulness of the gospel. We've been walking through the Jesus Storybook Bible for quite some time now. Um, but you know what? It was the death of Kobe Bryant and mm. Gigi Bryant and, and the other seven victims that when we were watching the first Lakers game after uh, Kobe and Gigi's and everyone else's untimely deaths, mm -hmm. uh, my son, it just began to connect. And he was like, wait, Kobe Bryant died? And we're like, yes, me he died. His daughter Gigi passed away. There were other victims in the helicopter crash. And, and it just rocked Deuce. And he, he began to see the mortality. And he's just sitting there like, wait a minute. And, and he's processing. So he walks in the other room 
And and I just follow him and, and we began to have a conversation and I began to walk him again through the gospel. I tell him how Jesus died one time, but he rose again and he offers us life. And Deuce just, he just started weeping. And I'm like, well, why are you crying? And he's just like, I I, I want Jesus. Like I, I like he's struggling with death, but he's, he's hearing this concept of eternal life. He's heard it. There's been gospel seeds sown, but now it's like, oh man, this is starting to take root. He's, he's connecting the concepts. The Holy Spirit is doing something in our son. And so he's like, I, I want Jesus to come into my heart. You know, and this is a six-year-old using this language. And I'm just kind of like, I'm not going to sit there and theologically, well, you know, technically me whole theologically, <laughs> I'm sitting there like, wow, like this is a, this is a yeah. sacred moment. And, and, and I just really feel the Holy Spirit impress on my heart. Hey, include Alicia. And so I said, deuce mijo, which means son in Spanish. I'm like, hey, let's let's go. Let's go talk to mommy. Let's let mommy pray with us. Let's talk to Jesus together. And so in the midst of the Kobe Bryant, you know, memorial that's going on, the Lakers game has already started by that point. I say, hey, Alicia, uh, deuce wants to make a profession of faith. And she just looks at me and I don't know what's going through her mind. And I'm like, yeah, you know, but but I just really felt led by the Lord to come in here. And hey, let's let's do this together as 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 as, as mom and dad. Let's let's make this prayer together in in this moment of our son's life. And so we do that. And then when we say Amen, uh, Alicia just just breaks. And I'm like, what, what's going on, babe? And she's just like, this morning I prayed that the Lord would open Deuce's heart to the gospel, Damon. Like wow. I I had no idea that he was going to answer my prayer like this. And I'm like, whoa, I'm like, are you serious? And she's like, yeah. I said, literally, I could have just prayed with him. I, I've led many people in a pro- prayer profession before, but I just really felt impressed to come in the room and, and bring you into this moment. And so that's what leadership looks like in the home. It's not running away from the tough conversations. It's not running away f- from theological discourse. It's literally the talking about the nuances of this is the gospel and this is how it should be integrated in all life rhythms around us. So that's just one example recently of, of, of what it looks like in our home to have these conversations. Man, what a beautiful story in the midst of, uh, I remember watching that game. It was just a lot of emotion and for see the Lord work through that is just incredible to hear. And what I love about what you were talking about leadership in your home is it just comes back to intentionality, asking those questions at the dinner table, pressing into that conversation when it comes around. So just a great takeaway for, for that is just intentionality in the home. Well, and and being open, like being open to the spirit and his work, I think is is massive too, because you can't make every conversation uh, into something, but being aware and praying for that to happen and then looking expectantly for that to happen. And when you're seeing an end, take it. And and the beautiful thing about, <clears throat> sorry, the beautiful thing about, you know, a, a marriage and having a partner like that in life and ministry in the home is, you know, he was able to take advantage of that. He didn't even know it because he was open to the spirit because yeah. he was open to the spirit. Amen. Um, which is hard for us Baptists uh, sometimes to talk about, but <laughs> it's real. It's true. It's true. But you know what? What's cool is me, me and Alicia were raised in the Assembly of God. So we were like first wave Pentecostal charismatic <laughs> growing up, growing up. So, so we got that, 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 that heart soil that's already been tilled there in that you go. way. Uh, but, but we are, you know, uh, by conviction, Southern Baptist. So we, we got guardrails <laughs> and we're like, yeah, these are safe guardrails. <laughs> that's good. That's good. All right. Um, well, uh, tell us a little bit uh, about, okay, when you were 20 years old, yeah. What would you tell your 20-year-old self 
about leadership? Man. Like what advice would you give? You know, arguably the best advice that I've ever received. And when I get asked this question by a 20 year old, that's, you know, man, I'm praying about marriage, praying about going into ministry. Uh, what What's the piece of advice you would give? I said, man, I will share with you uh, what uh, Dr. Elwood Chip Chase and Dr. James Clark shared with me years ago uh, when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And, and they told me, they said, Damon, there's three areas in your life that you need to passionately pursue purity in. Number one is your doctrine, like consistently, faithfully dive into the word of God, feast from the word, drink deeply from the wells of wisdom from God's word. Do not compromise the integrity of the scriptures and God will shape your theology. He'll shape your practice. So stay pure in your doctrine. Number two, stay pure in your sexuality. Love your wife. Keep your marriage bed undefiled. Fight lust. Confess things quickly. Engage with having people looking at your life and specifically in the area of your sexual expression. So pursue purity there. Number three, pursue purity in your finances. Make sure that you're not making decisions by yourself. Make sure that there is open and honest communication between you and your wife. You don't be out of the loop and don't keep her out of the loop. You need to work together. Don't don't steal money. Don't take money. If you feel that you're not putting forth the work ethic, then don't take the paycheck. Like be honest and be a man of integrity. And they told me if you can pursue purity well for the rest of your days in your doctrine and your sexuality and your finances, God will guard you. He will keep you. You'll stay humble and broken and he will use you mightily. And so that's what I, that's exactly what I would tell the DA Horton that's 20 years old trying to process through who am I going to marry? What does God want to do in my life? Am I going to be a gospel rapper forever? Like all those questions that I was asking back then, I would say, listen, man, you're asking the wrong questions. You need to really be focusing on these three areas and, and then just trust God in writing your story. Man, that's a great framework. It really is. Uh, I don't know who it was that gave you that advice, but, you know, we've done like five, six years worth of episodes now, and I've never – you know, you, you're thinking, well, what more can be said yeah. in this particular area? But that's, that's really, uh, that's really insightful. I hope, uh, our listeners who are younger can take that to heart and the older ones as well. But, <laughs> you know, we'll get asked that question by a young person a lot and, and to have a framework is always really helpful. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's my joy. You know what? I, I've shared that with uh, with young people, man. <laughs> like I said, over the last almost ten years, and now I think that, I think in twenty nineteen was the first time somebody came up to me and said, "Hey, years ago you told me to stay pure in those three areas." Man, I've been doing it, and you're right. The council stands, and I'm like, yeah. And again, Dr. Elwood Chip Chase and, and Dr. James Clark, they they when I worked at Calvary Bible college and theological seminary in Kansas City, you know, they're the president, vice president, man, they loved me. And these men had 30 plus years of pastoral experience. Not only were they scholars, uh, man, they just, they just, they just loved me. And Jesus intersected my life with them for such a time as that season. And and, and, and the truths and the gems and the nuggets that they gave me, uh, it's it just been hidden deeply in my heart because it was rooted back to the scriptures. Love it. Well, DA, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing some leadership wisdom and just for your vulnerability uh, with us. And for those listening, thanks for joining in. We hope it's been helpful. If it has, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. And we'll see you soon.